0: Greetings. Welcome to Monster Kids. I'm your host, J. Michael Roddy. Today I thought I would start by sharing a post from the original AOL Classic Horror Film Board that was written almost 25 years ago. In it, executive editor for USA Today, David Colton, perfectly captured the heart of what being a monster kid is. Here are his words. These fragile remembrances of monsters past evoke a feeling that all of us here are somehow refugees from different corners of the same theater. How many of us in the last few years have shared similar tales of discovering our first childhood chillers? The neighborhoods or names changed, but the evocative messages of autumn and late summer nights so much the same. We share, in purest essence, a collective and sweet memory of something very special. Whether it's chiller theater, or a younger brother refusing to turn the channel to watch King Kong, a stationary store with only one remaining copy of Famous Monsters, the sheer excitement of the Mysterians ads on Channel 9 when Godzilla was still only a movie old or the laugh of Zachary, interrupting Atwill's crazed one arm lecture, somehow we were all in the same place at the same time, with the same ability to call it all up like that, as if yesterday really was the day before today, not tens and twenties of years now gone. But the Monster Kids, that's us, The Monster Kids, young and old, seem somehow special. We understand somehow because we are all parts of the same shared visual. We all hail from the same place, sitting cross-legged on the same sofa, with the same Sylvania or Emerson or RCA black and white TV, flickering with the Universal Globe or the RKO Radio Tower or even the Twilight Zone signposts there up ahead. Somehow, we're all from the same family, all rushing home from the same school down the same cracked sidewalks, kicking the same leaves on the same November afternoon to catch the same shock theater movie on the same night. And with Bela Lugosi, too. It's always chiller night for us. For us, the Monster Kids. The older the films get, the more distant the players and the more obscure the sources, somehow the younger we become. Edward Van Sloan is old. Not us. Not the Monster Kids. Lon Chaney is gone. Not us. Not the Monster Kids. Even decades gone by, we're still kicking leaves in a swirl, waiting for the commercial to end, the parents to go to sleep, and the castle to loom through the fog. The same fog we've been trying to see through for all of these years, before digital magic made everything too easy to believe. Because the best horror movies are the hardest to see, after all. It's what keeps the Monster Kids squinting through the mist, somehow in this world of death and awkward and weird, sharing together what it was like to be young. We were the Monster Kids. David Colton, October 1995. If you want to know more about the original Monster Kid craze, check out my award winning documentary, Monster Kids The Impact of Things That Go Bump in the Night. Now, on with the show. Our guest today is one of the most talented artists out there. Jeff Preston has had a lifetime fascination with monsters and all things spooky. He has been a professional illustrator for over 30 years, inducted into the prestigious New York Society of Illustrators in 2006. He also serves on the membership committee. Having enjoyed a prolific career in publishing and advertising, his monster art is what he is best known and awarded for. His art has appeared on the covers of Famous Monsters of Filmland, Little Shop of Horrors, Monster Scene, and Monsterpalooza. In 2012, he was awarded the prestigious Rondo Hatton Award for the Best Cover of the Year for Little Shop of Horrors issue number 29, The Definitive Dr. Fives. Apart from illustration, he also plays the banjo, to which he holds the distinction of being the only illustrator to ever play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on the five-string banjo at the Society of Illustrators. Let's welcome Jeff Preston.
1: Hello, everybody. How are you doing?
0: Jeff is a card-carrying monster kid from way back, and we're going to talk all about his love of monsters. Let's jump right into it, Jeff. So tell us, what was that that first gateway into the world of gods and monsters? What was it for you? Was it a film, a horror host? Uh, Take us back to that little infant that looked up at a screen or saw an image and said, I like that.
1: I think it was actually November the nineteenth, nineteen fifty eight, the day I was born. <laughs> <laughs> right out was, of the
0: right in the hospital room you just came out not. and said,
1: Ah, good. Fire bad. <laughs> it was, you know, as far back as I can remember, uh, it was there was always a fascination. Uh, early on I think with dinosaurs, because you saw that more often. Then that's before the uh, the shock theaters came in. We we got, finally got a chance to see the old Universal. So dinosaurs were probably my first exposure to. And of course, we don't really consider that horror, but it, the imagination part of it. Yeah. It just was fascinated with that. In fact, uh, and I still it's around here somewhere. I need to find it. When I was five years old, I did a drawing of a caveman waving bye to the dinosaurs he just killed. And I was in first grade and that won the first place in the PTA carnival in the art contest over grades one, two, and three. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> you know, it, it's, but about that. it's I'm sorry. Uh, uh, talking about dinosaurs. You know, there is, there is a great correlation between monsters and dinosaurs. I mean, again, it's something that we don't see in everyday life. It's this amazing creature. Some of them are kind, some of them are ferocious Um but usually the way we always are, are kind of introduced to them is the thought of what if they existed in, in my world, or, or I saw one, you know, the, the size and the ferocity and things like that. So it's funny that you, uh, that's what that drawing was. A lot of Monster Kids, kind of their gateway was King Kong, believe it or not. That was the movie that said, oh my gosh, this world of the fantastical I just love.
1: And, you know, I just don't remember seeing any movies uh, prior to probably four or five years old that had, you know, of King Kong or any of the Universal stuff. So it was about, what would that have been, 63 maybe, when Shock Theater was starting to make the rounds? Yeah. Uh, And out of Nashville, the horror host was Dr. Lucifer. He had, (laughs) had an eye patch and he would smoke, he was smoking a cigarette. His first command was, good evening, turn out your lights. And as a little five-year-old kid, my parents were, would play cards at the neighbor's house. And it take, came time for Shock Theater, and I wanted to go home to watch the movie. So they let me, you know, this is the early 60s. It was no big deal. So they let me go home. So a little five-year-old kid running through the, the, the dark to get home till I could turn on the TV and then run around the house to turn out all the lights per Dr. Lucifer's command. And just be mesmerized by all the by all the old Universal films. It was, it was it was so striking. I think and so predominant. I think that's why I have an affinity to black and white illustration, especially when it comes to those characters. It's hard for me to do them in color. Wow! Because of that. that imagery is just so vivid. Those rich grays and and just that dramatic lighting. Uh, it just made an impact.
0: You know that that is such a. A great memory to think about I uh, I discovered I discovered those films through a horror host in Tampa Florida his name was dr. Paul bearer yeah you know? I know exactly what you're talking about. and he he smoked cigarettes as well except he called them coffin nails which I always thought was <laughs> so fascinating and then when my parents smoked I would point to them and go coffin nails which sometimes was funny but in mixed company sometimes it was a little ghoulish <laughs> You know, thinking back, like, you know, Famous Monsters of Ma- um, uh, Filmland magazine, uh, you know, the fact that the cover was always in color, but right. but the imagery was those amazing high contrast black and white images of those those amazing makeups and those, those great actors. And also, you know, nostalgia kind of hues that too. Like, I, I'm sure it was grainy and the reception was not necessarily great, but... I, I see them in high def, just beautiful, pristine black and white. I still remember, I still remember the chill of when Frankenstein's monster turned around for the first first time, and then that kind of quick, you know, I think it's three repetitive shots as we get in closer and closer to really enjoy that makeup. And oh, I just I just love it.
1: It's and I don't think you can actually duplicate that anymore. If anybody tried. One, there wouldn't be an audience for it. It would be considered too tame um, by today's movie-going audience. And they some are probably bored with watching those things now. But I tell you what, I could sit down and just watch them over and over and over. And I think I have them in every format
0: mm-hmm. you
1: could get. 4K, not yet, because I haven't got that way. But I guarantee you.
0: <laughs> I don't see how they could get better.
1: I, I don't I mean, either. Way, really,
0: I tell you when I put in that new Blu-ray restoration of, of Lugosi and, Dracula, and mm-hmm. Dracula, I, I just, it was so beautiful. Just so, I mean, like brand new. And uh, um, again, you know, you look at the, the influence uh, of those filmmakers and, and what we all now kind of take as a cliche, but back then it was kind of, it was new, you know, the kind of, coming from the shadows and, and the, the way that the camera would, you know, move. I, I actually too, you know, one of the things uh, Todd Browning's Dracula is lovely, but also the Spanish version, which has so many more camera moves as really revolutionary for 1931. And a
1: lot of angles that they didn't utilize. So that was, that was kind of nice.
0: Right. And then they kind of caught up with that. uh, I'm going to say near, I remember Bride of Frankenstein really being the one where you have these kind of really Dutch angles looking up at Pretorius, Dr. Frankenstein. So obviously I'm going to assume that famous monsters of Filmland magazine might've been an influence for you. It was up
1: to, let's see, the first issue I saw on the stands and I remember getting it because a buddy of mine in school got one too. And I forgot which issue it was. It was the Frankenstein uh, versus the Wolfman, oh. issue like thirty something maybe, and got that, and then really that was the last time I saw him until about uh, I want to say sixty nine maybe,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and that's when I started. Oh, I was getting older, and, and saving my uh, my long cutting money uh, to buy the magazines, and uh, I think that's you know obviously eerie and creepy at the same time. Uh, but that, that was my art education. Uh, you know, Basil Go-Go, needless to say, you see those famous monster covers and you're, you're hooked for life.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So let me ask you, what was it? You, you said like one of your earliest, mem- earliest memories is pencil in hand, d- drawing a, a caveman and, and a dinosaur right. and telling a story with it, too. That's what I always love. You know, you can kind of there are kids that just draw. And then there are kids that are are understanding that you can tell stories through one image. That's what's always so fascinating to me.
1: I, I even I looked when I look back at that when I ran across it several years ago. I was kind of amazed myself. I said, "I'm five years old. I got everything in here. Here's the dinosaur that's been killed. The caveman waving by. There was so much stuff going in there, but it was all storytelling. That's wonderful. Primitive, but it was all there. That's what just it, and you're just doing that naturally."
0: So, so take me from that first drawing and then you start discovering, you know, monsters and things like that. So tell me like, you know, let's go through grade school. Uh, Am I imagining little uh, Jeff sitting in second grade drawing the Frankenstein monster? Or when did you start like, okay, really wanting to create those through your own hand, through your own pencil, like your own version of those, your own perspective of those creatures?
1: Oh, it was always constant. And then, of course, about, uh, you know, before Famous Monsters, actually, uh, Creepy came in play before Famous Monsters, because that's when I first saw my first Rosetta cover. Oh, wow. Uh, creepy number, what was it three or four with the, the vampire on the cover? Mm-hmm. That uh, just, I mean, I to this day, and, I, and look how many years that's been, I can vividly recall seeing that thing on the stand and just, it was like a, a beam of light came down from heaven and just shone on that thing. <laughs> uh, and it just captured me, you know, it captured my imagination, the style, the st- everything about that was, it was there. Mm-hmm. And ever since, and I was, I couldn't pronounce the name, but you know, the signature I recognized. And so every time I'd be in a bookstore where I'd always look for that, that Frazetta name. Uh, so my youth was spent copying, copying Frazetta stuff left, left and over and over and over and over. And then, you know, you draw the pictures out of the magazines. You're always, uh, you know, I'd sit down in front of the movies and and try to draw the movies too. Like I mean, they used to have a um, Channel Five here in town, which would be the CBS affiliate, it had an afternoon uh, theater, afternoon movie matinee that came on like four o'clock, and that's what they'd start showing some of the old B grade movies and things like that. But I would sit down there with with a pad of paper and and draw what I was seeing.
0: Hmm. Wow. So kind
1: of retroactive storyboarding.
0: That's fantastic. Well, and you know, let's, let's keep going in your career. I mean, obviously your love of it, you, you're one of the premier illustrators of any type of uh, monster or, or genre um, work. I mean, your stuff is, again, you have a style that's recognizable. Uh, I, 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 I love your work and, You know what was the connective tissue of? Hey, I want to do this for a living.
1: It was kind of assumed. You know, you're when you've done something your whole life, and everybody around you tells you that's what you're. Oh, you're going to be an artist. You're going to be an artist. You kind of assume that. And my only exposure to art really was through the magazines, through Famous Monsters, eerie, creepy, and then Vampirella. Uh, that was my art education. Any art classes I had to take in school that were mandatory, I was bored to tears because I already knew, you know, they're they're teaching the masses. So it wasn't, it's not geared to kids that actually have some ability. So you're thrown in with the mix. So you're obviously just bored. So I never, I never took any kind of art, you know, when it became an elective thing as you got older. When I got out of high school, because I started doing editorial cartoons uh, for the local paper, when I, I think I started when I was 14, which was basically just a ripoff of Jack Davis style, um, <laughs> but you know this is local; nobody was going to know that. Right. And and to me, at that time, you know that was that's kind of way I looked at things. If I wanted to be a cartoonist, I had to draw like Jack Davis. If I wanted to be paint monsters, I had to paint like Frank Frazetta or Basil GoGo's. You know, that I, I didn't realize you have to find your own path on that. Right. Sorry,
0: hold. No we'll hold for a second.
1: Yeah, there we go. I thought I'd turn the phone off. Now it's off.
0: It's okay. Um, Let's go back to that. Um, you were talking yeah. about you had you didn't realize you had to have your own style.
1: Exactly. So when I got in, uh, when I graduated high school, I started as a art major at the at a local college here, or Middle Tennessee State, and uh, with the whole intent of being not knowing anything about an art career not knowing anybody in the field, but thinking, well, this is how you do it. And of course you get in there and def- there's only two classes you had. One was art history and the other one was two dimensional design. And as soon as I got into dimensional design, the, the instructor was, you know, leftover burnout hippie from the sixties. that want to know how we felt about this square. And I thought after a semester of that, I thought, you know what, if this is art, I don't want anything to do with it. Wow. So it was very, very disheartening. I ended up, Shortly after that, joining the Navy. Mm -hmm. And actually, it was in uh, when I was in the Navy that that the art thing kind of got resurrected a little bit. Um, I had uh, inadvertently uh, tried out for SEAL training when I was in boot camp. Uh, I was tired of marketing. And I went in, in the Navy in great shape. I was getting out of shape in boot camp. And we had marching, like two hours of marching come up and a SEAL recruiter was there. Of course, this is in 78, you know, so nobody knew what a Navy SEAL was back then. Right. And uh, so my idea was, well, let's see, if I go try out for this, I could go swimming. I can go do all that. I could go exercise and I don't have to march. So I went and tried out for it and made it. So, you know, I had like a couple of weeks to make up my mind whether I wanted to go for that, that avenue or, or not went to hospital corpsman school first, then into there. Uh, when I got into there, we have what's called Hell Week. And that was, to, to this day, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Most people that have made a life career out of the teams, they always look back, and, and that was their, their touchstone. When things get tough, hey, I, I went through Hell Week. So I went through that, and we have what was called a go-to-hell Hell Week shirt. And anybody can draw? Yeah, I can. So I ended up doing our, uh, our Hell Week shirt, which was really, really heavily Zetta influenced so I look back now and went, wow, <laughs> this, this is just so Frazetta. It's not even funny. But did that, and then shortly after that, I ended up tearing up a knee that kind of put a, a in a roundabout way, it ended up putting the end of that career path. But while I was rehabbing, I started, and they stuck me answering a phone. I had a drawing pad there, and I would just draw. I'd start drawing again. And all of a sudden, you know, those juices were coming back. And the odd thing is, as long as it had been, because it had been probably, oh, gosh, I don't know, several years, a couple years maybe, since I really even drew anything. But the odd thing was when I would sit down and draw, I was better without, you know, you would think if you keep practicing, keep practicing, you'll get better and better. But there was a long period of time, but I came back in and I'm, I'm doing it better. And the only, the only answer I have to that is it's just the powers of observation. You get more and more attuned to what you're doing or what you're looking at or what you're trying to put down on paper. So, um, uh, Long story short, I ended up getting out of the Navy and went back to art school in 82. And that's when my goal at that point was, let's do, I'm going to art school, uh, which was Columbus College of Art and Design, Uh, went there because they had, and I was older, but they did give scholarships to students that already started. So I thought, I felt pretty confident I could get that, which I did. Not a lot, but it helped because I was paying my way through college. And uh, with my goal of, hey, I'm going to do covers for eerie, creepy, Vampirella and famous monsters film land. That was in '82. Warren went out of business in '83. wow! <laughs> oh. Oh. wow. So, so, so that kind of, oh, it just that devastating. oh, I, I didn't. But the good thing is, when I went to school, I was all of a sudden I was exposed to the world of illustration. You know, just take the genre out of it. Right. Now it's illustration. I'm end up being, I'm find out I'm a fifth generation Howard Powell student. I start seeing uh, a lot of these older, especially NC Wyeth and guys like this. And I was seeing Frazetta. You know, I'd see these old, some of these old illustrators, and I was seeing Frazetta's influence. But I went, oh, no, 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 Frazetta came long after them. So these guys influenced Frazetta. So you start putting all those pieces together. And at the same time, I think it was the first semester I was there, it was a painting class. And we had to paint a, uh, just a little still life. And somebody walked up behind me when I'm painting a warty gourd, a little vase, and something else. said, oh, you must be a Frazetta fan. <laughs> I thought, oh, wait, now how am, I'm painting a warty gourd and a vase. How can you tell I'm a Frazetta fan? In fact, I, told, uh, I was lucky enough to spend a day with Frank Frazetta just about a month or so before that first big stroke and told him that story. He looked at me and goes, guy,
0: you must have something I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So you, you actually got to meet your hero. and, and Oh, absolutely. Um, before we jump into that, I want to know, though, so through this story, which is fascinating, the, the Navy SEAL that becomes the illustrator, um, what were your parents like? Did, were they cool with you drawing monsters? I mean, they would see stuff. I, again, you know, there's always that that uh, thing that happened, that, that saying that would happen, and especially all our monster kids, us monster kids seem to have this, is we seem to be outsiders or, you know, the neighborhood parents sometimes worried about us. Oh, yeah. I was very lucky because my mom was very, very uh, accepting and, and promoted it because um, she was a fan herself. But so were your parents like, no, this is great? Or did they ever show you any concern or were they supportive? I'm not really-
1: so they were supported. My dad actually was kind of a closet artist. He would paint a picture uh, just for fun, usually landscapes, about once a year. And oddly enough, the, the thing I talked about earlier, it was the same thing with him. Each year, his paintings would get better, even though there was only maybe one or two a year and a year's time. He'd paint them on vacations uh, when he was on vacation during the summer. And each year, they got progressively better and better and better. So it's, it's definitely a genetic trait. Uh, the art thing, but you know, always, always, in, he never really, uh, specify what I should draw, what I would do because he was a traveling salesman for a uh, windbreaker and he would leave on a Monday, he'd come back, use it on a Thursday. I'd drawn something that week and then I'd have him grade me. Uh, and he'd always give me a C or a B and I'm like, well, why, why didn't you give me an A? Well, why, are you trying to brag? So he, he kind of put that work ethic in, in that, that strive for perfection that I have to this day, which I don't know if it was intentional that he he knew he was doing that, but it worked. So I think that's why I'm such a perfectionist at what I do, uh, you know, always striving for that A. And even when I taught college, I told students the same thing. Um, you know, I, I don't give A's that easy. If I give you an A, you earned it. And it's, it's based on a professional quality of work. So... You know, it's, I think that's that's missing a lot today where people just aren't, they don't strive to get better. Even, and there's nothing in mine in my house. I don't have anything hung up because I, you know, even though at that time it might be the best I, I did at that time, mm-hmm. give it a week, you can go back and see where you should have done something different or, or change it or do it better. So if I had my stuff I'd be going nuts.
0: Well, all I know is I've i I've seen so much of your stuff and every piece I just have fallen in love with. Again, because you see the story. You you really capture that. Um, let's talk about that, that lifelong influence. So you had you had Frazetta and then how did you end up meeting him and what was that situation like? This was I had
1: uh gosh, this was one I forgot the oh no, I do remember the year. This would have been about 93, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had just opened the uh, Frazetta Museum in East Stroudsburg, the first one that was downtown. And we went up to Ohio for, thank, or I went up to Ohio Families for Thanksgiving and drove from there over to, so this was up in Columbus, Ohio, and then drove over to go to the museum. I said, you know what, I'm going to kick myself if I don't do this. Of course, I was just going to the museum. I had no, I had hopes that I would maybe get to meet Frank, or he'd be at the museum. Of course, Ellie was there all day long, and I was there the minute the door opened and the minute it shut, just hoping Ellie would invite me over for dinner. Didn't happen. But at the at when I did leave, I put a deposit down on the Egyptian queen um, with the remark on it, where Frank would go in and draw a cat at the bottom. And, uh, and kind of left it at that. Well, that a little bit late, let's see, what, that was Thanksgiving 93? Uh, was it, I forgot the time frame there, how much time had expired, it went from that, but I was in a really, really bad car wreck, and um, it, it really put me up for quite a while, and I had sent Ellie a note that kind of explaining, you know, I'm sorry I haven't paid the balance, this is why, you know, such and such. And uh, she said, oh, no, no, she said, don't worry about it. You just get it when you can. She said, I had this saved for you. I had Frank do it up special, which I'm sure she probably told everybody. Um, but then, you know, I, I recovered and got, every, got the ballots paid and sent it off, and then the print came. Now, I opened it up, and I was expecting, you know, just a line drawing on this thing. No, it was a full-fledged pencil drawing, and my jaw was on the ground. I could not believe, you know, what I had. And I called, you know, Ellie, just to let her know how much I, I was gushing. And she said, "You know, Frank would love to hear this, but he's at the doctor right now. Can you call back in a half an hour?" <laughs> you think? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so needless to say, I'm sitting in the clock or counting those seconds down. And I call, and we start talking, and it's like had known each other our whole lives, and uh, just really hit it off. And he said, uh, you know, I'd love to meet you one day. We're getting ready to move to Florida, uh, down to Boca Grande. He said, if you ever did in the area, make sure you you know, let me know. I'd love to meet you. Fate would so happen, you know, like six months later. I'm down in Florida uh, in uh, at Disney World and made a plan to make a day trip over there. So it was all set up to, to meet. So that was all set. So we get over there and walk in. And, of course, the museum there was very, very small. Uh, I can remember a lot of these a lot of the paintings just stacked on the floor up against each other in the back that were Frank had taken me back but so he wasn't there his son-in-law was and uh, I'm standing around and you know just nervous as I get out because I mean you gotta think what I'm 36 35 whatever I was at the time and this guy's been my hero since I was five years old and uh, so uh, his son-in-law calls and said, dad, dad, he's here. He's here. So I'm, I'm anxiously waiting. It's like, you know, five minutes. Here comes Frank bouncing up the sidewalk. You know, remember this is before the stroke. So he was in full, you know, full presenta. Huh. He comes in, grabs my hand looks me up and down. He goes, well, you're not what I expected. <laughs> and his son-in-law said, yeah, dad, I know. Look at his cask. You know, cause I work out. And he looked down, and he goes, oh, my God. He said, you look like, and he turned around and pointed to the woolly mammoth with the barbarians charging the woolly mammoth that had monster calves on the guy. Wow. So I'm gushing because I'm thinking, Frisetta just compared me to one of his barbarians. So, you know, we we spent the rest of the afternoon. Him show me stuff around. He would, the, uh, the painting that is now in the museum in East Stroudsburg, the, uh, oh, gosh, what's the name of that thing? that Ellie did not want anybody to see. And it was, it was kind of like his, uh, Oh, what is the name of that painting? It's going to drive me nuts. Uh, he, he kind of looked at it. He, you could tell that he was wanting to show this to me. And he looked at his son-in-law and he goes, Oh mom, Hey dad, mom's sick. She's not going to be down here. So he, he, he said, go get it, go get it. <laughs> so it's like, it reminds you like two little kids that just found their dad's playboy or something. They want to bring it out. Well, so he brings this, this painting out that nobody's supposed to see, and I'm just—I'm like, oh, I can't believe this. You know, we we just hit it off so well, and I'm so eternally thankful that it wasn't a disappointment. Because how many people meet their heroes, and you know, they're a disappointment. But it wasn't the way. And he treated me like an equal. He was going through my stuff, and he couldn't. I, you know, I was doing everything in marker, and he could—he couldn't believe I was doing this stuff in marker. And he—I remember there's a little wolf I did. Uh, a wolf with a lamb in its mouth is it a biblical illustration. He just loved that. In retrospect, I should have gave it to him. See if he would have given me something back before Ellie found, huh. but anyway, so we spent you know, that, that afternoon it was just pure magic. And of course, you know, a month or so later he had that first stroke and, you know, it was kind of downhill after that.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's talk about, you know, moving into now. I mean, you're you're one of the go-to guys i mean you you're your name's right up there and you're probably going to uh not allow me to say this but i'm going to i mean you're you're a modern day frazetta for us you're you're gogos i mean you're you're you do all these great great illustrations and we just love them so like how does that make you feel like that there's a whole group like you, when you were five, now P- there are these kids that look at your illustrations and, you know, you see them at conventions and they're just like falling in love with it. How does that make you feel?
1: Well, you know, ironically, you it's kind of hard to feel anything because you don't have the audience. I mean, you might, you know, somebody might tell you something in an email or something, like that, but you don't have that reaction. Uh, I've, I've used the term before, illustrators, we're, we're visual entertainers without an audience that we never see. Mm. We, we do this, we get the work out there, but we rarely get to see the reaction. That's what was so fun when we had the, uh, the first couple of years of spectrum. And, and I'd go up, I'd be set up at that and people would come by and they point, they'd start pointing. Oh, I remember this from this there and there. And then just they Oh, you did this. That's when you got to see the reaction. And that was fun. So that's fun. I know. Trust me. I, <laughs> I don't put myself in anywhere near the category. Frazetta or Go which there's another go there's a go-go story here too. Oh, let's hear it. I don't know if you were aware of this. Um, of course, when Monster Scene came out, Steve Smith, mm-hmm. Bill Harrison, put out Monster Scene, and I started doing interior illustrations for that, and Basil was doing the covers. So, you know, we were basically sharing ink. Uh had I had met Basil at the what year was that? They had the famous monsters convention in D.C. Ah, I forgot what year.
0: 95, 96?
1: something like yeah, somewhere in that area. But I I'm, I made it a point to you know take all my stuff and I met him there. And again, he couldn't get over it, the fact I was doing this in marker. And uh, I remember we're sitting there. And I'm sitting there with this table with him and Paul Kelly Freeze walks by and say, Hey, Frank, you got to see this. This is marker. And he pulled up one of my and you know Paul Kelly Freeze or Frank Kelly what's what's his full name you know legendary science fiction illustrator and he's looking at my stuff and he's looking back, back and forth and he had kind of a a list but i think these are markers oh my gosh i need to get me some of these markers <laughs> so that's you know the first time i met basil and I, I we weren't doing monster scene at that point so that that was predating that a little bit uh then we started doing monster scene now in this would have been 2003, maybe, I went up to Wonderfest. Basil was going to be there. And I just, I, you know, I want to get up there and, and reintroduce myself and you know, just tell him what an honor I always considered that we shared ink in Monster Scene. Mm-hmm. So it was a brief meeting there. You know, we didn't spend a whole lot of time. Uh, but shortly after that, I was uh, inducted into the Society of Illustrators in New York. And one of the things you can do as a new member is sponsor other members. Well, guess who the first person I sponsored was? Basil uh-huh. go And Basil always said, you know, I never, never thought I deserved it or had the means. I don't know if he thought it was an expensive thing to be in. But, you know, I, I sponsored Basil. So at, back then we had a new member uh, ceremony each year, new, new member dinner. So that night I was inducted alongside Basil. We were inducted the Society of Illustrators together.
0: Oh, what a wonderful memory.
1: That's oh, that's a great memory. And you know, since then well, we've done different things together and Basil will always said, me, I remember that. We got so drunk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what's it's, your favorite, uh, what's your favorite basil painting?
1: Oh, Jay, how you gonna how you gonna do that? Which one's come to mind? Like that you just you could look at it over and over. I you know, the one that really pops in my mind as soon as you said that is the Barnabas Collins. Oh yeah, famous monster. That was that he just. Of course, I was a big Dark Shadows fan too, but that he just man. There was just something about that. Even to this day, when I see it, I'm still just blown. away. I'm blown away by everything Basil did. But that one just always did, and of course, the Frankenstein. That was the ironically the only cover he owned.
0: Really? Yep.
1: Yep. I remember him telling me that I you know they were sold out or given away for, but the Frankenstein. Uh, the classic one that he did. That's the only uh, cover he actually owned.
0: Wow, you know, it, it. Your comment about Barnabas Collins. It's it's fascinating to me. It, it just kind of hit that we didn't have the access that kids do today. You know, um, and those images actually in in our memory replace the actual content. Cause I, I I mean I like I like Dark Shadows, but it was not necessarily filmed well. Oh no! no, no. It, and the lighting was not necessarily effective, you know. But when I think of Dark Shadows, I don't think of that. I think of that painting because that captured so much of what you wanted Dark Shadows to be and what your imagination put into it, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's to me again. He did that. Uh, you know you one of my favorite things that you've ever done obviously is is that that wonderful image of bob burns um, yeah, my very first monster cover and we love bob burns um, oh absolutely he is he is monster kid uh royalty but you know talk a little bit about that first cover what was it like realizing that okay I'm going to do the cover of this magazine and it's it's also going to be bob burns I mean what was was the pressure, like, or how did you create that? Did you know what you wanted to do immediately, or was that kind of like, oh, here's what we're thinking? Tell me that process. Well, we kind of knew
1: we wanted to incorporate some of the imagery from from Bob's uh characters, like, and I didn't want to do the grill, the bad mummy character that he did, uh, that, that was appropriate. I was given you know tons of reference on that, but what made it special is I we went up to one, I went up to Wonderfest when Bob was there, and we Steve Smith had a little suite set up and, and I did all the photo shoots. I kind of had, I wanted that, that shocked look, you know, the kind of hands in front of the face deal. And I took a ton of shots with all the lighting set up and Bob was like the absolute best model you could have. I mean, he's so animated and so many expressions. I literally, I could have chosen any of them to work and, uh, and, so after I sketched it all together and put it together, you know, that's, that's just kind of how it came about from that point. And I mean, I poured everything into this mm-hmm. that I could, it was almost a disaster because the arm was the very last thing I did. It's kind of funny. Now you look back at it, the reference shot, I was using of Bob's arm, the way he had his hand turned, you're only seeing three fingers.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I drew that as I saw it, not thinking, well, you know, somebody might think Bob only has three fingers. <laughs> so, so you know that that was like a hindsight twenty twenty thing. But when I got to the arm, there was and I was still working in markers. There was some blend, something didn't work, so I actually had to do a separate arm on a separate piece of paper. And this is you know before Photoshop and all these type things. Mm-hmm. So I would I did that. I trimmed it out with an X-Acto knife. So the arm on that one is a paste-on arm. Really? Yeah. And that was the way you know old old school illustrators that would right. have to do that stuff. So that's the way that was done.
0: So tell me when Bob first saw it, how did you present it to Bob? I don't, you know, I don't know if I, why he never, I
1: don't know if he saw the, I know he saw the original, he was here at the house. Uh, Oh, you know, he saw it up in, in Wonderfest too. So I don't know if he saw another scan of that. Yeah. Of course he just thought it was wonderful. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't remember his initial reaction. I know he loved it, mm-hmm. but he would obviously saw the magazine before he saw the original painting. And the painting still, and I still have it, is it glows. The cover reproduction was horrible. Mm-hmm. It's just not good at all. It's, it's, it's darker colors are not, um, eh, it just didn't do well. But if, if you compare the original to that cover, it's night and day.
0: What was your favorite project you worked on, or one of, or just some of your favorite projects you've worked on?
1: Uh, oh, God, it's hard to say because I it's monstrous. You love them all. Yeah. Uh, one that I really, to this day, if I and like I told you, I'm a perfectionist, but there's only one illustration I've ever done, and there's been thousands that I can look back and say I don't know how I did that. I don't think I could improve it. And that was the, it was an interior illustration in monster scene for the family Dracula. So it was Bela Lugosi uh, and the, the son of Dracula, oh. Longini Jr. And then the, the female Dracula's daughter, I forgot the actress's name. Yeah. So It was basically a family portrait. And that particular illustration is, is the one that I look back and I'm just, if I had a, a high watermark, that was it. I don't think I could replicate that again. Wow. And it really wasn't necessarily going for the, at the time, it's just, it's just the way it happened. Uh, so that would, that was, that one really turned out well. Um, now, one of the, actually, one of the ones that, uh, that I, I loved doing, and it was such a rush job, was Curse of the Werewolf for um, Little Shop of Horrors.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. uh, one, that's my favorite werewolf movie of all time. You know, that's just. Sure even more so than than the wolfman yeah. because the ferocity of, of oliver reed yeah was just oh my gosh it's just
0: Mike hill are oh yeah on that yeah
1: oh yeah yeah my, mike and i are on the same page on that trust me <laughs> in fact it was mike sculpt that i used as a model for that cover oh wow um, That's right. yeah mike, mike sculpt and david fisher of course had it and he did david fisher's paint job so I borrowed David's to to um, to set up my model for it to get a, the a lighting different than what you saw in the movie, um, you know, the angles different. Because that's when I do these covers, that's what I try to do. I don't want to use a still that everybody's seen a thousand times and other illustrators, you know, you're, just, you're using the same thing. So what's unique about that? So I try to always either use a screen grab or if there's a model available like that, use it, you know, true. You're, you're still doing the same character, but just something a little different. So it's something fresh for the viewer of an iconic image. What was so funny about this, so I was running out of time. And and uh, Dick Clemson was really bugging me. Hey, Jeff, we got to get this in. We got to get this and I'm like, dang, it. So I didn't have any drawing board. I didn't want to have to drive to Nashville to get it. So I had some computer paper, <laughs> a little thicker computer paper. I tested it real quick on markers. Hey, it doesn't bleed too bad. So I did this thing and it was like transparent, and I think I've posted this on Facebook where you flip it over and it's almost like abstract art because it bled through so bad. But on the surface, it, it still worked. So I did this cover really fast. I think I did it like a day and a half on a piece of computer paper, and it ended up being one of my more popular covers. So if I went to sell that original and somebody goes, yeah, well, how big is this? Oh, eight and a half by 11. It's on computer paper.
0: <laughs> that's amazing.
1: So I don't know if I get, you know, the sentimentality. you probably couldn't sell it, but at the same time, it's like, man, how do you charge somebody? For that? Right,
0: right. Right. Oh, so is there a, is there a famous monster that's your favorite?
1: Yeah. It's like asking a parent to choose which is your favorite kid. Uh, you know, there's every time I see Lon Chaney Jr.'s The Wolf Man, that's just, yeah, you know, Boris Kar- Frankenstein, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher Lee Dracula. Oh my gosh. You know, I, I, Creature from Black Lagoon, I, I don't, I don't think I've ever drawn him.
0: Yeah. I was just going to ask, is there a monster that you haven't done yet that you wanted to, or a subject that you would want to? And is it Creature? Would that, that be one? Yeah. You
1: know, that's, that would be it. I've never done The Creature from Black Lagoon.
0: Well, so let's get somebody to get you to do that immediately. You know.
1: <laughs> and there's been some good ones out there. Uh, Drew Struzan, the one he did on that, oh, just phenomenal. Oh, gorgeous, yeah. Dan Julian did one that's just jaw-dropping.
0: What do you think about Monster Kids today? I mean, you, you're you at these conventions as well, and you see young kids come up. I, I mean, they're less and less. I, I don't know what I would have done if there was a convention like that when I was a kid. Exploded. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We
1: would have spontaneously yeah. combusted.
0: Yeah, I, you know, because all we had was what was in the back of those worn magazines, just kind of see merchandise and what was out there. But uh, the thing that I love that's so pure is that there still are Monster Kids that have discovered these characters and and discovered just the nostalgia. They they love the idea that it's cool to love them. Um, do you think uh, Do you think Monster Kids will keep going?
1: Oh, I think so. I I think where we have a little leg up on everybody else is that especially back then there was so much left of the imagination.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, everything, every, everything wasn't filled in for the viewer. And especially when you're artistic, you, your mind's going to create things that there's no way they could ever do on film. I think that was one of the downfalls of the, the remake of the, the Wolfman, which I thought i loved love the movie, but when it came out in theatrically, you know, they, they, were so fast to get to show the Wolfman and you missed out on the storyline. So if you, if you've seen the Blu-ray where they put that extra footage in that's story based in the front of the movie, it's a better movie. Absolutely. But, I mean, think back then again, uh, curse of the werewolf. We didn't see the werewolf until the end of the movie, Right. And it's all story building up there. So we as monster kids, we have a better appreciation of story and imagination, we don't have to be shown everything, uh, and I think that's that's probably what's going to be lacking a little bit today because everything's out there CGI. You're, there's nothing left for the imagination. It's just all there. You don't have to think or imagine anything. So I, you know, I could be wrong. I, I think a Monster Kids a Monster Kid, and they're gonna they're gonna appreciate the stuff just like we did. As but as an overall group you're not going to have the, the goal that we had, so to speak.
0: But I look at that. I look at Wolfman. I look at Frankenstein. It's like you're invested before you ever see it and your imagination. I mean, you know, I think about the original Frankenstein where they're talking about the brain and they're talking about dead tissue and you see the form underneath and you're imagining, Oh my gosh, I know. I bet. I know what that looks like. I bet. I know what that looks like. And they primed you. But then when you saw it, it blew your mind. Right. You know, and now it's like, no, we'll pretty much show it to you. Right. I mean, even, and I, I love special effects. I mean, I always, I will always love practical effects more because I just feel they still haven't gotten it right to where the lighting looks right or that there's just, there's something in the room that as opposed to something that's fabricated. But I, I still miss those days of the anticipation of oh no I know what this is going to be I know what this is going to be ah oh, it's worse than I thought it was going to be exactly. yeah yeah
1: yeah oh. there's very very few films that do that anymore that had that, that kind of buildup uh what was the um it actually was it ended up being a Hammer film what is it uh, Don't be afraid of the dark is it was that yeah. it yeah oh, yeah I thought that was that was kind of a throwback to the old days you know they had a good build up to it. Yeah, well, those cool little critters running around.
0: What's uh, what's your favorite films these days? Like, what what really uh gets you going?
1: Uh, pulling out the old ones. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, it's it's there's just not that much anymore that really captivates me. And I, you know, I was really looking forward to the the Halloween that came out the remake because the previews looked phenomenal. Yeah, and man, I got there and all I kept thinking was, no, this is flat as a pancake. And it, it just made me have a greater appreciation of how good the original really was.
0: You know, we were talking a little bit about it. I I thought the first first 10 minutes of that movie, I'm like, okay, I'm loving this. The fact that it's moving Michael Myers in a 2019 with kind of the podcast and the in, investigative reporters and those kind of making a murderer shows are going to in, investigate this. And then it just turned into, I, I, I called it Home Alone on Halloween. I, 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 <laughs> That's
1: perfect. That's absolutely perfect.
0: Well, I mean, again, like, and I can recognize that it was satisfying to a, a group in the audience that does, I mean, I, I think I'm a hard audience, and you're probably the same way. I want, I go into a theater wanting the film to live after I leave. Exactly. Where, Whereas to me that was completely here's a popcorn and you're never going to think about this movie again, you know. And uh, the original John Carpenter film, to this day, resonates.
1: You know, about that same time when the Fog came out.
0: Oh, I love the Fog. I saw
1: the Fog in California. I was still in the Navy. Couldn't get any of my buddies to go with me, so I went by myself. In fact, I think this was, I think we were in pre-training for it, buds. And I none of my buddies wanted to go, and I said, well, I'm going to go see this. This. Ghost movie. Went and saw it. It was uh, just down the coast from Coronado there. I forgot where it was. But anyway, come out of the theater and the thickest fog I've ever seen in my life had set in off the ocean. And it was so funny to watch, because it was a big audience, but everybody leaving the theater just stopped dead in their tracks. That's wonderful. It was like the movie's continuing. Nobody wanted to walk to their car. So, Talk about a lasting impression on on a movie.
0: So, what's the best way to see your work?
1: Well, uh, my website's jeffpreston.net. I have a little bit on there. I don't have everything on there. Of course, Facebook, I got uh, a lot of stuff there. I, you know, ironically, I have not done that much horror related stuff. Um, you know, the covers and, th- and things I've done, but I've been more of a mainstream illustrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so,. Obviously, the, the, all the monster stuff is my favorite thing to do, but I really haven't had that much of an opportunity to do that much of it. I wish I could do. That's all I could do, but you still got to pay the bills.
0: Well, maybe some of our listeners will put you to work.
1: That's right. Always open for commissions, and I still have quite a few originals that are absolutely I used to be so adamant I will not sell originals until I started selling a couple, and I thought, you know what? This is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this stuff just stacked. Down. I'm not looking at it and I don't want to really necessarily see it. And this buys a couple of meals. So and
0: somebody is treasuring it. I mean, it is the focus of their, their, you know, living room probably, or, or their den or their study, you know?
1: And that's, you know, that was part of it. I thought this, you know, somebody spending money for one of my originals, they want to hang it up because they love it. Yeah. They, they want to see it. One of the, the ones that I, I, kind of almost like a badge of honor. Somebody owns one of my originals is uh, Greg Nicotero. He bought the, and actually this was, I did, back when Famous Monsters was getting ready to come back, I did two big marker pieces. One was of uh, the Dorian Gray, uh, yeah. that one, and then Christopher Lee as Dracula. And it was kind of like companion pieces, big. They were pretty big. And I, I'd format them for like a Famous Monster cover. And uh, Greg had seen a print of that at the Mask Fest
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, the year I was there because they did they used one of my illustrations for the poster for that little kid with the, the Halloween mask,
0: uh-huh. which is great.
1: That's what that's one of my favorites, and because yeah. uh, that was that was essentially me. That was a self portrait. Yeah, yeah, that was I I felt that one, um, but Frank or Greg had walked by the table and he saw that print. He goes, "I want that." I said, oh, then you're the prince. He goes, no, no, I want the original. <laughs> and I'm thinking, at that time, I don't sell the original. Well, you know, flash, flash forward a few years and, and we get uh, in contact. and he, he bought the original. So, and that was, he sent me the, nah, he sent me the picture of him holding that one, just tickled to death. And I thought, you know, that's great. You got Greg Nicotero holding one of my originals that he really likes. He yeah. paid for this. Yeah. So this guy I'd seen that makes monsters itself love something I did. And it's no way I'm going to be hanging at my house. But you know, what a badge of honor.
0: Well, I will tell you this time has gone so quickly. I would love to have you back on the show in the near future and continue this conversation. It's been joyful. Everybody check out Jeff's work and uh, any last thoughts, Jeff uh, no, uh, email is
1: uh, info at jeffpreston.net. Anybody has questions, uh, commissions, any anything you want to know, just drop me a line. We as illustrators are hermits. <laughs>
0: we we don't get out a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much. You have a great time. You too. It was my honor. All right, take care. Alright, bye bye. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I would love to hear from you. Drop me a line at monsterkids at gmail.com and let me hear what you think. And if you like the show, please, please make sure you like and share with all of your fellow Monster Kids out there. Also, do yourself a favor. The next time you listen to the show, or any show for that matter, make sure you have one of Theme Park Alchemy's amazing scented candles flickering in the background. Our friends Sean, Jen, Ryan and Nicole at Theme Park Alchemy bring some of your favorite smells inspired by their favorite theme park attractions. And one of their newest scents is Ginger Dead. The Ginger Dead scent is inspired by the holiday overlay of the classic haunted dark ride, The Haunted Mansion. The scent is frightfully fun And it's a blend of holiday spices and gingerbread goodness. And it's meant to conjure memories of Pumpkin Kings, Sandy Claws, and holiday horrors. They have a full selection of scents and more are on the way. And for all of you Monster Kids out there, they have a special offer. Order now and add the code MONSTERKIDS and you'll receive 15% off of orders over $15. So what are you waiting for? go to www.themeparkalchemy.com. Special thanks once again to my guest, Jeff Preston, and please make sure you check out his website and blog at www.jeffpreston.net. Music was written and produced by my good friend and fellow Monster Kid, Michael McCormick. You can learn more about his talents at www.michaelmccormickmusic.com. Our next episode is already in production, so come back soon. And until next time, as always, we'll be lurking for you.